John Cena, while you, you lay there, hopefully as uncomfortable as you possibly can be, I want you to listen to me. I hate this idea that you're the best. Because you're not. I'm the best. I'm the best in the world. There's one thing you're better at than I am, and that's kissing Vince McMahon's ass. Hello everyone, welcome to the 90th episode of Debatable. As always, we are your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. And I'm Nina. Today, we're talking about the fascinating and rather dramatic world of pro wrestling. This is a topic that neither of us, unfortunately, know too much about. But we do know someone who is knowledgeable about it. The 8th best judge of the Philippines, a member of the Debatable team, the communications director for Magiting Cup, and a lifelong pro wrestling fan. We are thrilled to announce our episode 90 guest with the intro music to one of their favorite wrestlers, CM Punk. Please welcome Charlie Vito, aka Cheeto Vito. Hi, oh, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm Charlie. If we've met in debate, you might know me as Cheeto. I've been a pro wrestling fan ever since I was four years old, but I've been debating ever since I was 14 years old. So hopefully one of that is really cool and not boring or something. So yeah, I think that's all. So pro wrestling is sort of sport, sort of entertainment, and I personally wasn't a fan of it. I was exposed to it quite a lot. My brother was into it when we had a PSP. We had WWE on it. I'm not sure what year it was, like 2008 or something. But I enjoyed the game. I did not enjoy, however, the misogyny in it, the the racism, the cultural appropriation, and things like that. And we are going to talk about all of those things today. But before that, to go a personal question, Charlie, you have been watching pro wrestling. You've been a fan since you were four years old, more than 10 years ago, maybe like 15 years ago. But the question now is, why is it so interesting to you? What drew you in all those years ago and what made you hooked on it? I remember just seeing it on TV once and not necessarily knowing what it was. And like I said, I was like four years old at the time. So it was really interesting because it was like a movie fight scene, but with all the theatrical stuff integrated. So you would see like people diving on each other, submission maneuvers, and perhaps the occasional trash talking to rivals during that round, which is just really entertaining. And then after the matches, you would also see just like rivalries, which would back up the storylines for those matches. So it's like there would be nostalgia in every fist fight that you would see. Or just the fact that it's much more than fist fights. So yeah, I think it's just a cool thing that you wouldn't get in other wrestling matches. Like let's say in amateur college wrestling or like let's say in just other martial arts and sports and stuff. So I think that's what's really unique about pro wrestling. We are watching telenovelas right now, Nina and I. And from what I understand, it's like telenovelas, but instead of it being strictly about romance or strictly about like crime or whatnot, it takes place within the context of a combat sport. So it's just like a telenovela, extremely dramatic. You have a lot of emotions. Characteristics are often exaggerated. But there are also tropes in telenovelas. Like, you know, oh, was the house helper nice to you? Well, good news, she's actually your biological mother. Did your lover die? Well, no, they actually did it. They're alive. They have amnesia now. You're confused again because you have a thing going on with Raphael and can you have a child with... Can focus. Okay. <laughs> It's just, it's just, I get so heated up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, but what I mean is, what I mean is, 
are there tropes like that in pro wrestling, like in a telenovela, that might be relevant to our conversation today? Hmm. For the conversation today, I think nothing specific, but in general, pro wrestling has this thing called kayfabe. So a lot of the time, it's just people portraying characters quite strongly to the point that it might be exaggerated. So perhaps the most common example of kayfabe might be The Undertaker, who's quite popular, who portrays literally a man who had risen from the dead. Um, but perhaps for this discussion, we'll focus on just other characters which might be portrayed by these wrestlers. So perhaps um, nationalistic ones. Um, we'll also dive into the discussion of, let's say, people of color and even just like a lot of the external things outside of pro wrestling. But, you know, still pro wrestling is very involved. So that's clear. So, yeah. I guess before we jump into the issues and talk about all those things, the main question is, what really is pro wrestling? Is it a sport? Is it entertainment? Is it a mix of both? What is it? So I think the misunderstanding people often have about pro wrestling is that they can't determine whether it's sports or whether it's entertainment. And that's why you'll often hear people saying, ah, it's fake wrestling. Or if you're a pro wrestler, then you are a fake wrestler. A lot of um, a lot of pro wrestlers which have transitioned to, let's say, going to MMA often get trash talked by their peers um, for being a fake wrestler, quote unquote. But I think in its most basic definition, pro wrestling is just a form of sports entertainment. Therefore, it's not necessarily one between the two, but rather it's both of them, which features written storylines and fictional personalities with just the main purpose of entertaining its audience. So a lot of time, a lot of the time, rather, these storylines um, depict rivalries between heroic wrestlers, which are often referred to as fans as baby faces or faces, and then the villainous wrestlers, which are referred to as the heels. So, but then I think a lot of the time they also try to be more diverse about this. So you might see a heel going against another heel, or perhaps a face going against another face, and then later on in that rivalry, that is when you see one of them turn into a heel. So there's really a lot of like theatrical storylines that you'd see to it. There does seem to be quite a large written component to it. So would you say that because of that, it's really not about the fights per se, but more about the narrative, the reason why they were fighting, rather than just like the dramatic moves, like, I don't know, like the Batista bomb, the tombstone. Your, your knowledge is so old, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you were talking about the 2008 PSP era. That's also where I got yeah, most yeah, of the wrestling yeah, knowledge yeah. that I have. So yeah, would you say that it's not really about the fights per se, but more about you know, the story behind it, why they were fighting to begin with. Yeah, I would say that's exactly it. Like, I would, like let's say in most sports, it would be your win-loss ratio that would determine the fan base that you're able to gather. But in pro wrestling, that wouldn't be the case because I think it's just popular opinion at this point that the matches are predetermined. So um, a lot of the time you have terms like a push for a wrestler where you would see a mid-carder suddenly be going against like the big people like John Cena, etc. And perhaps someone just like being underappreciated as well, people will know that that is the fault of the writers of that company. It's just the idea that because it's sports entertainment, presumably your in-ring performance is as important as your skill with holding the microphone because that is your main medium of interacting with the audience. And I would say that this has manifested in many ways. Like for one, wrestlers like CM Punk who have been in several brands like the WWE, Ring of Honor, and might be going to AEW soon. Um, 
while he was extravagant in the ring, I would say that there were clearly wrestlers who were much more skilled than him in the ring, but it was just his like ability to depict his character on the microphone, which made people really appreciate him. He really appealed to the fans, all of that. So I would say just like microphone skills to an extent become more important than the in-ring ability. So now Undertaker, The Rock's big announcement. It's two weeks from now at No Way Out. Dead man walking is gonna walk right into going one on one with the great one. Wow. Mic skills are so important because while you come for the fights, you stay for the story, you stay for the characters. And because you care about the characters, you end up caring about the people portraying those characters. And that's the reason why a lot of people want there to be debates about wrestling or at least like care about the issues surrounding pro wrestling. Despite that though, I don't think there have been a lot of pro wrestling motions. I've encountered a few. I'm sure Charlie has encountered more. But I guess the main question here would be, what makes this issue so debatable that you think more issues and more topics about pro wrestling should come up in tournaments? I think that there are a few things. Firstly, it's just how big pro wrestling has become. Because I think it's much larger than people perceive it to be. Like, it has been quite prominent all over the world. For example, I'd say the most popular company at this point would be WWE, which has just been dominating the sports industry in the United States and Canada for over like 40 years now. Or perhaps you could look at Lucha Libra, which has literally made wrestlers wearing masks, or you might know as the luchadors, very iconic to Mexico City. And even countries in Asia are very prominent in the pro wrestling industry. Like New Japan Pro Wrestling has produced some of the best wrestlers in the world, despite a lot of them being part of cultural minorities. You have seen Kenta Kobayashi, Kenny Omega, even AJ Styles and TJ Perkins from the Philippines, actually. And there are also a few local ones in the Philippines. I guess clearly it resonated with a lot of people. That being said, I don't think any piece of entertainment could be isolated from the real world, right? Art is always affected by society, and society is always affected by art, etc., etc. Give us a rundown of how wrestling sort of intersects with all these topics for debate. Pro wrestling was historically derogatory of women in its prime years, but has recently been taking more effort to just like provide more opportunities for women in recent years, considering there was high demand for this recently. Or even just like the large involvement of pro wrestling in politics. So for example, there have been a lot of controversial things lately, like perhaps Florida at the start of the pandemic, labeling pro wrestling as an essential service. Other examples of essential services had been like water providers and firefighters, etc. And I guess just like the large involvement of politics as well, the large, um, the large political activity that takes place within other pro wrestling brands as well, but perhaps we can discuss that later. It's in the same way that sports motions are never just sports motions. A lot of the time, sports motions will involve feminism, they will Im- involve economics, they will involve politics, they will involve culture. And I think just the same thing applies to pro wrestling as well. And like, like what Nina said a while ago, I've only seen about five or six pro wrestling motions in my entire debate career. So yeah. When I was younger, my exposure to pro wrestling was mostly male-dominated. Um, that has changed since. But from what I remember, I wasn't a big fan of how the females were portrayed, like the divas in this case. Because they were sexualized, they were often used as narrative tools. I don't think it passed the vegetal test at all. 
Like every time there was a backstage conversation, it was mostly about, oh my God, you're sleeping with this other wrestler that I'm supposedly dating or whatever. And they did settle it in the ring. But how does sexualization work in wrestling? Because I feel like there's a bigger story there. Many debates focus on the sexualization of women athletes in sports as like a marketing strategy, considering the sports environment is often like a male-dominated audience. But I think the misconception people have about it is that they assume it's just women wearing sports bras, as you mentioned, or perhaps them wearing revealing clothing for like advertisements that they might get um, in the instance that they become ambassadors for brands. But honestly, like, I think pro wrestling has shown that it's much more than that, or at the very least, if you are trying to market yourself in the most strategic way as possible, you might go to like really, really far extents. So for example, um, many women across different pro wrestling brands had to pose for magazines like Playboy just in order to like market themselves. Or perhaps Vince McMahon, who is the chairman of WWE, used to require women to get cosmetic surgery in order to remain part of their company I think perhaps we can just clarify this later but also just like a lot of women had to strip down to their underwear and just like other ways of like inappropriately revealing themselves and while if you are an independent athlete you would be able to make these decisions yourself when you are tied to a corporation or even at the very least just like have a manager with you you have little to no stake in these decisions because they will often tell you that these are necessary to just improve your career And from there, just like the choice of a woman or like the freedom of the woman to move just becomes very, very limited. And like, despite being a male-dominated audience and some people arguing that this might be justified, I think it's just a question of does it really have to go to that extent, which is just the, you know, the debatable part of it. Perhaps the most prominent example here being Trish Chattis. Um, I would say she's a good example of a successful pro wrestler who has like been subject to the furthest extents of sexualization in pro wrestling. Because before co- becoming a multi-time champion, she literally had to, quote-unquote, strip down and bark like a dog in a segment with Vince McMahon. Because a lot of the time, the chairman of WWE tries to integrate himself into the storylines. And upon retiring from the pro wrestling industry, she eventually spoke out about it, about how she had to remove her chest implants after retiring because she really did not want to have chest implants. She only had them because it's either she was required to or because her bosses told her it would be very, very preferable for her career. So it's just all of these things which are very, very derogatory to women because if they were given their own decision, then they probably wouldn't have chosen to do these things. And people didn't realize it at the time. But now that you've seen just like more movements coming up, I think that's when the industry was forced to adjust to it. So, yeah. Trish, be a good girl. Just get down on your knees. How bad does she want to be the WWF Women's Champion? It won't hurt. I'm going to unbuckle my belt. I'm going to unzip my pants. Oh, no. The look on Trish's face. Here it comes. That fabulous fanny of Mr. McMahon is about to be exposed. What we heard just now is Vince McMahon, the chairman and CEO of WWE, harassing Trish Stratos as part of a storyline. We don't see their male counterparts having to be portrayed as sex symbols in order to succeed, at least for most of the time, right? I guess this is another example of what is called the male gaze. But Nina, a meninist, and I'm not saying this as mm-hmm. a meninist, I am... Pretending as a devil's advocate, as it were, 
they might say that, well, men are also sexualized because they have like rippling abs, like really big muscles. They're very sexy, very hot, and they're always shirtless. Isn't that basically the female gaze at work? Well, the male gaze actually originated in film studies. And it's not just about the fact that they are women that are sexualized, but it's also about the techniques used to sexualize. So if you see men being portrayed in these ways, like shirtless, like they're covered in water and glistening in the sun or whatever, it's actually still the male gaze. It's just that the subject being sexualized is no longer the woman, but it's the man this time. So no, I don't think there's such a thing as a female gaze because what you usually see as sexualization of men It's just an extension of the techniques used to sexualize women. This is why when you see those action movies, there's this misconception that they're actually catering to women, but really they're catering to some sort of power fantasy, right? So you sexualize women, men benefit. You sexualize men, men still benefit because a lot of women are not into that kind of portrayal anyway, right? So I, I think that the male gaze affects not just women, but everyone in general. Yeah, but I would also say that men get harmed by the male gaze as well because mm. what kind of like it, it tells you what kind of man society expects you to be like um very toxic masculine like offended at everything. Yeah, yeah. like a snowflake but big. But anyway, <laughs> Charlie, you said that the industry has been forced to sort of adjust to calls to end this kind of misogyny. I wanted to ask if that has actually changed or if they actually adjusted and if they did adjust how did they do it so i would say that because of all the derogatory content that came out in like the last few decades people have began criticizing it especially in like this idea of an increasingly progressive world so this just somewhat forced the wwe to start this new project which they had branded as the women's revolution in 2015 it was announced by the daughter of the chairman um Stephanie McMahon and basically the women's revolution is just this project which tries to provide more opportunities for women um this looks like let's say having more championships pay-per-views and just like special event matches which were initially only applicable to the male division now being applicable um to the female division as well so a few examples of this would be the women's royal rumble match the women's money in the bank match and just all other championships which um were only available to men now being available to women for example in a in a royal rumble match it used to be only applicable to men and how it would work is that it would be a big deal if you were to see one out of 40 participants being a woman and the rest being male so now you have like an entirely different bracket just for women to go to the exact same match etc um i would also say that it's not necessarily a perfect movement despite how good it sounds like i'm sure that providing more opportunities for women in an initially um you know derogatory environment sounds like a great project and that's why people would say that the women's revolution is great but really there's just like a lot of criticism to it as well so yeah you told us before that one of the geese criticisms was the fact that the very first women's money in the bank ladder match was won by a man that's a mouthful but basically it was won by a man obviously a man winning a woman's event is always going to be problematic but more so 
if the man won because a group of writers went into the room, decided that it would be a good idea to have a lot of fainted women sprawled around the ladder while a man was grabbing the suitcase. Not a pretty picture, but it was greenlit. Could you tell us a bit more about how the money in the bank ladder match even works? How this ladder match works is that basically there's a briefcase with a contract inside of it hanging like 20 feet above the ring. And since it's a ladder match, you have to climb a ladder and basically grab that. What ended up happening is that the on-screen boyfriend of one of the participants there, his name was James Ellsworth, climbed the ladder when all of the women were knocked out and he grabs a briefcase for her. So therefore, his on-screen girlfriend had won the match. And from here, when you have a man, sorry, when you have a man rather, just take over what could have been like a historical moment for the women's division. That's already just like a large form of criticism or perhaps pay-per-views, which are usually held once a month. So perhaps the um, the minimum amount of days you can have in between each pay-per-view, it would be like 28 to 30 days, perhaps. Um, they eventually tried making a pay-per-view exclusively for women, which is called um, WWE Evolution. But the weird thing about it was that there was there were much larger pay-per-views just 15 days after and 15 days before so that's about like three pay-per-views taking place in one month so even if you were to make like an exclusively um an exclusive pay-per-view just for um the women's division then it's unclear as to why you wouldn't treat it equally as valuable as all the other pay-per-views so really there's just like a lot of criticism with the way that it was executed so yeah and then out of nowhere bam naomi just takes her out and then says Nobody cares about you or your little husband. Honestly, I'm so surprised. I didn't think Naomi had that in her. Well, I did teach her everything that she knows. And would you really expect anything less from her? Girl, you are so bad. I know. So you told us there's a rebranding taking place. And I've been hearing a lot of terms like diva, superstar, supernovas. Is this the same or is this the attempt of rebranding? Okay. Um, I think... Just the first thing to clarify is what is a diva versus what is a superstar in pro wrestling. So one of the major changes brought by the women's revolution is the change of terminology. So women were formally referred to as quote-unquote divas, which in and of itself was very mitigatory of their skill. But now women are referred to as quote-unquote superstars which is the same term they would use to refer to male wrestlers because male wrestlers would, let's say, be awarded titles of like superstar of the year, etc. So now it was a direct attempt at just like blurring the gap between the two gender divisions in pro wrestling that just because you are a woman does not mean you are a diva. And I think just the term diva already just like has some implications to it like in and of itself, which might be harmful. So yeah. So I guess with all of those things in consideration, the question now is, overall, do you think that the women's revolution was a success in pro wrestling? Because it's true, like you can criticize its execution a lot, but the women's revolution, the question now is, has it done more good than harm? Has it done more harm than good? That'll be the debatable thing, right? Have they been getting more opportunities, championships, etc. in actuality? And do you think that these things are worth it? So they definitely have been getting more championships. Like, as mentioned a while ago, um, like Nina mentioned a while ago, rather, that you would see a lot of female wrestlers who would just go to the 
um, ring, wearing bikinis, you wouldn't see them be able to connect with the audience with them on the microphone. A lot of the time, they would just play the manager girlfriends of male wrestlers who would eventually go off to win championships, but then these women never get championships themselves. I'd say that it's um, very different now, especially after this revolution. So what ended up happening, rather, was that because of the number of new championships that were then available to them, so it was no longer just the one women's title in the 90s, or like, let's say, the one Divas title in the early 2000s. But now you will see like a SmackDown women's title for women, a Raw women's title for um, women as well. And I think there are even tag team championships for exclusively for the women as well. So this is the reason why you'll see wrestlers like Sasha Banks and Charlotte Flair not necessarily having male counterparts anymore but rather just them having a lot of time in the mic, them being able to interact with the audience. And these people are able to gather like stable fan bases now as compared to, um, you know, just the little time they would be given on screen before. Like, for example, I would say that the tradition before is that women would only be given about one match per event. And then the male the male wrestlers would be given about um, six or seven matches. And if you were to get two matches for women, that would already be a big deal. But now in the last WrestleMania, I think there were about four matches for women. And I think while that is still disproportionate to the 10 matches you might get for men, like at the very least, there are an increasing number of this now. So I think that just shows that there are more opportunities for women. So that's the good thing. Um, But in terms of like, I guess just tying back to the whole discussion and how does this all fall relevant to the debate. One of the most prominent debate motions about pro wrestling is about whether or not men and women should still compete in separate divisions, considering, again, who wins matches and who loses matches is already planned. Or just like in terms of the um, physical interaction between wrestlers, a lot of the time matches are choreographed, so presumably there are protectionary measures. So a lot of people would argue that there shouldn't be a division. But then a lot of people would still argue that there should be a division because, um, you know, is it really strategic to put women in a male-dominated audience, which they will never be fully appreciated in? Or should you just, like, give them an entirely new division where people can opt not to watch it, but at the very least, all eyes are in them at the point in time where people do opt to watch that division? So I think those are one of the most debatable things about pro wrestling, actually. And... If I recall correctly, it was one of the first pro wrestling motions I have ever encountered in the Bangladesh tournament. So yeah, but I guess later we can just discuss other pro wrestling motions which I've um, seen in debate. So yeah, I think that's my thoughts on it. And now here I am, center of attention like I deserve. And you want to know why? Because I am the standard of this woman's ambition. I've been running this women's division since day one because I am the boss of the women's division because I am the talk of this division. And now I deserve all this glory. I guess now we can move on to the cultural issues in the pro wrestling world. So a lot of these characters are written to have their own personalities. Like they're fabricated from scratch. Maybe it takes away from their own personal lives, but most of the things are fabricated. And it might just be me, but a lot of people have their personalities based around their race or their culture. And I was wondering if that was a fair assessment. 
how are cultures represented? Do you think they're represented fairly? Or do you think that what I mentioned about stereotyping might be the case? I would say nationalistic gimmicks have recently become more popular in pro wrestling. And in fact, people who opt into nationalist, sorry, nationalistic gimmicks often have, let's say, often garner positive impacts for their career once they do. So a good example would be Jinder Mahal in the WWE as well, who was formerly a mediocre wrestler. He never really chased after championships. He would always be in the mid-card, just like filling in matches where they wouldn't be able to allocate people to. Um, but eventually became world champion after he had returned to the WWE after like an extensive hiatus and branded himself as the quote-unquote modern-day Maharaja, which is, um, if I'm not mistaken, Indian royalty or an Indian prince at the very least. And from there, it just led to a major increase in the television audience of the WWE, where you would see over a million new fans coming from India. And because you were having that nationalistic gimmick, you basically assure yourself of a fan base that you wouldn't be able to get um, before you had branded yourself as that. And because the WWE is able to see that, ah, the more opportunities we give him, the more fans we get there's then more incentive for the company to just like give you a further push and that's how he eventually got the um opportunity as a world championship your wwe champion the modern day maharaja jinder mahal To me, a nationalistic or cultural gimmick like that would happen if a character is defined by their costume, their cultural trait. Maybe they would have like something stereotypical in their entrance music. But now, like you said earlier, there are heroes, there are villains, there are faces, there are heels in pro wrestling storylines. So do these representatives of cultural minorities end up being villains or heels sometimes? My point of reference kasi here is in Avatar The Last Airbender mm-hmm. where you had the Earth Rumble 6 and the Earth Rumble 6 was basically a competition between Earthbenders and it was clearly modeled after pro wrestling because there was a parody of The Rock called The Boulder and there was also a character called The Fire Nation Man who was defined just by the fact that they say that they come from or they're loyal to the Fire Nation. Basically another country. And we saw him portrayed within the context of Earth Rumble 6 as a villain. And everyone boos him and one of the main characters even says that they should go back to their own country. So basically they were a heel. Have there been cases like that in pro wrestling where someone became a heel because of negative cultural stereotypes, things like that? So yeah, I was definitely, um, I could have improved my language in my answer to the last question where I portrayed it very much as a good thing when really there are a lot of, there's a lot of criticism against like the ethicality of it. Because um, as we mentioned a while ago, um, it's very much fictional. And you're right that a lot of the time, these people who are portraying nationalistic gimmicks are portrayed as villainous. Um, and the way that usually happens is that because there's like a, large um audience worldwide but because you are a specific wrestling brand that probably caters to a specific country like wwe to the united states um new japan pro wrestling to japan clearly obviously there are already biases within the audience so what has ended up happening at the very least in the 
um, segments that I've seen myself is that you'd get wrestlers like Alberto Del Rio who are from Mexico and their characters are very explicit about the fact that they are from Mexico. You would see them actively hating on the American audience. Like the segment that I saw, Del Rio was referring to everyone in the audience as El Perros, which translates to dogs, which is like a really, really huge insult to, um, you know, just the audience in general, especially when you're there to just cheer for your favorite wrestlers, etc. But a lot of the time, it's, um, I would say, done in a more subtle manner, but you would see how very hands-on corporations could be about it. Sorry, pro wrestling corporations could be about it, and that becomes a controversial thing. So perhaps wrestlers like the late Brody Lee in AEW were forced to fake Southern accents, or like, let's say, Santino Morella, who was Italian, um, but has lived in the United States for a large portion of his life and didn't necessarily have the... Um, the typical Italian accent that you would get from people would be forced to fake accents. And at the point in time where they didn't, or they had, like, let's say, strayed away from their character accidentally while they were talking on the microphone, they would be penalized for it. Like, they would be released from the company. A lot of news would come out about how they were yelled at by Vince McMahon, etc. So there are very explicit ways it's depicted, like the modern-day Maharaja we mentioned a while ago. But then this, this is also done in very subtle ways, just like faking your accent, especially when you don't have an accent, etc. I guess besides culture, we can also look at how it may apply to race. Are there good ways of portraying race in pro wrestling? Is it always going to be bad? Do you think there's some representation taking place? Or is it just another form of cultural appropriation? I would say a lot of pro wrestling corporations, especially the biggest ones, have been notorious for just racist habits. Like there are literally videos of Vince McMahon using racial slurs against WWE legend Booker T, who is like a renowned African-American pro wrestler. However, I would also say, despite these, um, you know, racist habits coming here and there, racial minorities still have relatively good success in the pro wrestling industry. So perhaps the most popular example being like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who was half Samoan and like half black, or perhaps people like Mark Henry, Kofi Kingston, were all multi-time world champions as well. So I think that's one thing. But also there have been, I would say, more recent examples. Like let's say this team of composed of three African-American wrestlers called The New Day, um, which they've recently become the longest reigning tag team champions in history. And obviously that's a big deal when you're able to just, you know, write yourself in the history books. And when you are a minority, that becomes like a something to celebrate. But while their in-ring ability is of like good extent, a lot of their fan base is attracted by um, their comedic gimmick as well. And this is enjoyed by most people because when, when I say comedic, it's not necessarily them portraying the traditional stereotypes that you might see from other wrestlers. Like another African-American wrestler would be R-Truth who had portrayed a rapper. He would enter while rapping to the audience. He would always like have a spray paint of the letter R on his chest. Um, but as for the New Day, how it ended up was very, very comedic. Like, it would be an understatement for me to say that it was just comedic, actually, because they would enter the stadium in, like, human-sized cereal boxes. They would throw pancakes to the audience. They would wear unicorn headbands on their foreheads. 
So it's just all these things that you wouldn't expect from a wrestler, and it's unclear as to why these do why they do these things rather, besides from just the intention of making the audience laugh. So from there, um, yeah, from there, it definitely is enjoyed by the audience, especially when you are like a live crowd. But it is sometimes criticized because like it leads to a lot of racial gener- generalizations about these wrestlers, but also just like it takes a lot of attention away from like their actual ability, since people will perceive it as comedic. So yeah, I would say that there is success for like there is success and there are a good amount of opportunities for racial minorities, but a lot of the time it's the depiction of it that becomes um, you know, quite controversial. Um so yeah. Since we're talking about race and you know, racism in general, we have to bring it back to the current context where of course we see the Black Lives Matter movement, which was spurred by the brutal and public killing of George Floyd. And basically, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. But how did the WWE respond to it, considering all the history between WWE and their relations with their relationship with race? I would say the WWE responded in a way that any other large corporation would have at the time that it happened. So they would go off to social media. They would make an explicit statement about it, saying that they are mourning the killing of George Floyd, saying that they are in full support of the Black Lives Matter movement, and just like you know, being able to garner more rights for racial minorities. And while that was praised when literally any other corporation would do it, the WWE was um got a lot of attracted a lot of controversy when they did it because of this like notoriously racist past. And that's the thing. When you release a statement, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you would live up to that statement. So if you say that you're in so, still in, still in full support of it, but then you would still continue to go with like your normal habits, which are seen as derogatory to these races, then um yeah, that's where you just get a lot of criticism. A lot of people would say that it was negligent to an extent. It would also be like um I would say hypocrisy as well, just because you make the statement but at the same time. A lot of wrestlers did feel like they were underappreciated, or a lot of wrestlers did feel like they were disrespected as a whole, especially because you depicting them as that, or at the point in time where um at the point in time where you do not treat them equally to other wrestlers, then they will feel like the reason they were unable to succeed or like not. Not able to get the respect that they deserved is because of how the company had managed them. So yeah, I would say that that's how the WWE responded to it. They responded it. They responded to it in a way that any other corporation would have. But that's the thing; they're not any other corporation. They were um, notoriously racist. All of that. So yeah. When we think of pro wrestling, we think of the issues regarding feminism, culture, race, etc. But like we joked multiple times on the show already. Somehow we always seek a coronavirus angle to issues. There's always a coronavirus <laughs> extension in debates. Pro wrestling might not be that, that different, you know. Like, what is the COVID extension to this episode? How has coronavirus affected pro wrestling politically, socially, even economically? So I think this is mentioned in the first part of this. So I guess this is where we can kind of dive into it. That. Florida had recognized pro wrestling as an essential service in the beginning of the pandemic. And note that since they are based in the United States, this is probably during the time where there were literally 250,000 deaths in a short amount of time brought about by the coronavirus. So this really just um, did not make sense to a lot of people. Like when you label pro wrestling as an essential service in Florida, especially because it did not fall in line with again just a lot of other essential services like water providers, firefighters, armed forces, security, etc. 
So the reason, or rather the question you would ask then is like, why or how did this happen? And the biggest guess people would have about it, which honestly makes much sense to me, is that it is presumably an outcome of the relationship between Donald Trump, not just to um, chairman of WWE, Vince McMahon, but rather chairman, sorry, but rather Trump's relationship to the company as a whole. And considering the pandemic started when Trump was still president, then this probably would have had like large influence to it. Like how this works is that for one, Trump was formerly the owner of WWE's largest flagship program, which is WWE Raw. Um, but also he's just like a current member of the WWE Hall of Fame as well. He was inducted to the celebrity wing in class of 2013 and just like has a very, very close relationship with Vince McMahon as a whole. And I think that it is just the same reason that a large portion of pro wrestling, of the pro wrestling fan base is Republican as well. And I guess it's like, so we can kind of go beyond the example of WWE. Um, It's not exclusive to the company itself. You will see like AEW founder Shad Khan, who is also like the I think he's also the manager of the Jacksonville Jaguars in the NHL, had donated over like a million dollars to Trump's inauguration ball. And from here, these are already like the two leading pro wrestling brands in the United States supporting the, you know, just the Republican campaign. So presumably, it is the large Republican fan base of pro wrestling, which may be the reason... Um, just all these forms of discrimination against women, against racial minorities are tolerated. So yeah, I would say that in terms of politics, that's definitely how the how that's definitely how pro wrestling comes into place as matter for debates. I guess you can integrate that one way or another. But in terms of COVID specifically, I would say that in the beginning of the pandemic, the WWE fired more than half of its roster. And this is a prominent example used in debates about um, sanctioning corporations with high rates of unemployment during the pandemic. I remember that one of the first ever online tournaments that I had participated in, it was a British parliamentary tournament. I was CEO and my OG flashes out this WWE example. And I was just really surprised because the WWE examples usually come from me. So I was like, oh, I was meant to be in this round now that like DPM is talking about WWE. But yeah, anyway, um, I think that it did seem like an excusable transition period for the corporation, considering just like the pandemic had placed the entire like the global economy on toll in general. But however, just like months after that, you have seen more batches of wrestlers get released or unemployed. And not longer than a few weeks ago, I would say it was about last week, right before nationals, actually, um, Another batch of wrestlers were released. This was Bray Wyatt and a bunch of like, I think around eight other wrestlers who did have a pretty good fan base. But the reason WWE had released them is quote unquote, because they had not seen them of relevance or benefited the company anymore. But really it probably does have a lot to do with the fact that they probably cannot maintain that much people anymore simply because, you know, like you're like, let's say how you sell tickets is no longer how you sell tickets or just like there's large criticism against you now because of all these issues coming up. And at the point in time where you have terrible responses to them and people will probably just stray away from your company. So yeah, I think just like that's a lot of how WWE or pro wrestling in general rather has manifested in terms of politics and COVID. I guess the question now is what is the direction of WWE given all these things that are happening? Is there... Anything we can predict for its future based on the matter we currently have? Will they open their doors again? Will they change? Will there be a permanent damage due to the pandemic? 
In terms of the WWE, considering like there's an increasing number of people getting vaccinated in the United States, that might help them like open their doors, sell tickets again. Um, but in terms of like how they are accepted in just the sports entertainment audience as a whole, most wrestlers who were unsatisfied with the WWE's treatment had transferred to AEW, All Elite Wrestling. And it is a much smaller pro wrestling brand in the independent circuit. And um, I would say that it is surprising how it had garnered a lot of support over the pandemic because I think it's this idea that if you start a co- if you start an entire business or actually an entire like TV show during the pandemic which really requires a large audience but for like the sake of fan interaction because appealing to the audience is a big part of sports entertainment you do not expect that to be successful especially absent the audience especially in the middle of a pandemic etc but it is now one of the major competitors of the WWE and i think that this information or this matter can be applied to debates wherein most people generalize the ability of rich corporations to treat their employees well like for example I'll just say, given the situation, it's clearly not always the case. Like your corporation can have a lot of money, especially in like their, let's say in their HR funds. But in terms of how well you are treated, it's really based on do your bosses have your best interests in mind? Is it really a conducive working environment, etc.? So at the point in time where you see many wrestlers who were in the WWE probably getting paid much higher than the average wrestler would have in any other brand, um, they're still willing to leave, go to a much smaller brand just for the sake of getting more creative um, freedom. I think a good example of this as well would be CM Punk. Um, I'm clearly a fan of this guy since I keep using him as an example. But he had stormed away, quote unquote, stormed away from the WWE in 2013 because he felt mistreated. He felt mistreated because he was misdiagnosed since he he mentioned how there sorry, I broke there. How he mentioned how there were negligent um medical professionals provided by the WWE. He mentioned how his 434-day championship reign was just ended so they could give an opportunity to The Rock who wasn't even like a regular wrestler. He would just come back once every few months, etc. So yeah, it's just all of these things. And then CM Punk, when he walked out of the WWE, said that he does not hate pro wrestling. In fact, he loves pro wrestling. He just hates Vince McMahon. And just a few weeks ago, he had signed AEW. And this is the first time he is coming back ever since um, his departure from pro wrestling in 2013. So I think it's just that, that you will see a lot of wrestlers doing this. And not just CM Punk, you will see like all-time greats like Chris Jericho doing this. Perhaps more modern-day talent like um, Cody Rhodes, who was... Um, who had an entire family legacy in the WWE. He is the brother of Dustin Rhodes. He is the son of the late Dusty Rhodes as well. Um, And then you see him now being the vice president of AEW just because people are going there despite getting paid, sorry, people are transferring there despite being paid much lower just because they feel like they're more respected there, just because they feel like they have more creative freedom there. So yeah, I think it's just that. Like, it's really difficult for them to sustain themselves, not necessarily because the pandemic had put them in a difficult situation, but rather because there are just a lot of things going wrong with the company right now. And the pandemic just makes that difficult to adjust to or difficult to address. So, yeah. So I guess there's a misconception that pro wrestling matter can only be used in sports motions. But as you've seen, a lot of these issues aren't just about like pro wrestling per se. It's also about how corporations behave their relationship with their employees. It's also about management. It's also about race. So in line with that, 
how would you say that the WWE reacted to the fact that a lot of their talent, like what you said, is starting to move away? Is the WWE struggling? Are they being stricter? Are they improving themselves actually to motivate their employees to stay? Or are they just giving up considering the circumstances? So I would say that there have been a lot of minor attempts to be able to address this problem. For one, WWE is trying to bring back their old talent into the um into the storylines again. So just recently, John Cena made a return. And John Cena, as I think not a lot of WWE fans, non-WWE fans know this rather, but like John Cena isn't a regular, perhaps because he's focusing on his movie career now. But yeah, he returned to the WWE. Um, and a lot of the time, pro wrestling industries uses a strategy. Like they will bring back old people, like let's say Bill Goldberg or something, or Undertaker perhaps, just so that the old audience would be willing to come back. Um, and there's a lot of controversy about that strategy as well, like how it takes away opportunities from um, you know, the younger people who should be your major or your current roster rather. Um, so from there, obviously, even if you make that strategy of like making a big dog like John Cena return, you can only do that on like a very minimal basis just so that the other wrestlers would not leave and go to AEW because that is also like a a common reason wrestlers feel the need to move to AEW. They feel like they're being underappreciated and you'd rather give the opportunities to the people who have like stolen the show in the past, like The Rock, um, Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, etc. In terms of whether or not the WWE gave up, I would say that since they have plans of reopening their doors and selling tickets again, it's not necessarily giving up. But Vince McMahon has recently been um, like subject to rumors about selling the corporation. And the reason behind that wasn't necessarily um, like clarified or confirmed. But if I'm not mistaken, there are potential buyers for it already. And these potential buyers are quite like, quite successful, um, you know, just like sports league managers as well. So yeah, I think that is to say that the WWE for the first time ever might be owned by someone other than the McMahon family, since everyone always thought that it would be Vince McMahon's like um, children, like Shane McMahon or Stephanie McMahon, who would be succeeding him, or perhaps his son-in-law, Triple H, who would be succeeding him. But no, um, he's selling the company. And honestly, I am in full support of that. I have no idea who's going to end up buying it, but I'm just in full support of that. Like a large reason I have just been like disattached from pro wrestling is because a lot of the time it felt like they were just trying to be popular, but um, it didn't feel like pro wrestling anymore. It felt like everything was just a marketing strategy, uh, all of that. So yeah, I'm in like in full support of selling of selling the company to someone else, especially if that someone else is like not racist, not sexist. Um, yeah, all of that. I do think that Vince McMahon is a, you know, not a good person. Um, so yeah, I would say that that's my stand on it. This is an interesting example of hating the person managing a corporation, hating a chairperson, but not hating the sport itself. I guess this just goes to show how diverse pro wrestling is and how flexible the topics are related to it. So why is pro wrestling relevant to debating as a sport then? What can we really get from it? I think most examples in debate 
especially in sports motions, we'll talk about basketball or perhaps the occasional American football examples. Um, but I think that this is really unfortunate considering how many debatable topics there are in pro wrestling, or it's just a matter of how pro wrestling, again, is not just sports. It will branch out to things like media. It will branch out to things like feminist and fe- feminism and just like um, women representation. It will branch out to things like politics, etc. It's not your usual um, athlete turned into politician example, but rather it's literally just the influence a fan base can have over politics as a whole, which is an entirely new aspect of how sports gets involved. So yeah, I think that's why I feel like it would be very relevant to debate. Wrestling is really fun to talk about in general because there's something in it for everyone. Like, as I said, I am a fan of telenovelas, but the debater in me, I am a fan of art motions, motions about labor, motions about corporations, about marketing, stuff like that. So would you say that the matter that we talked about in this episode would be relevant in other debates as well? Is that something that you want to normalize? I think pro wrestling is a common ground for sports and art. And admittedly, you don't see this common ground a lot. Like it requires an equal amount of strategy, like in terms of physical ability, but also just like creativity and how you appeal to the audience. And I would say that the same thing applies to debate as well, which is the reason that perhaps both debate and pro wrestling hold a special place in my heart, where you will have to be strategic in terms of how you present your speech, but at the same time, you will have to be creative in order to appeal to the judges or just like the people observing the round. And the exact same thing happens in pro wrestling. And there, from there, you just get a lot of like criticism about it. So sports entertainment, what is it in general? It's sports and it's entertainment, but then you don't have to choose one between the other because of the fact that it's a middle ground. So that's what I love about it. Like I talk about it because it's sports and I talk about it because it's art. And honestly, I don't think you'll get that anywhere else. Perhaps debate, but obviously I love debate. So yeah, I think that's the reason that both of these things just have a special place in my heart. I love sports, I love art, so yeah. I guess that's it for our conversation about pro wrestling. I'm pretty sure there's a lot more that we weren't able to cover. And for our listeners, if there are things you want to share, feel free to do that. And of course, we'd like to thank Charlie for taking the time out of their day to help us structure this episode and for being here for the interview. So that's it for this episode of Debatable. We'll see you in the next one. Bye! Bye!